Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is November 3rd, 2017, and my guest is journalist and author Tim Harford. He first appeared on Econ Talk in 2011, a long time ago, talking about his book Adapt, and he was a guest a year ago talking about his book Messy. His latest book, which is the subject of today's conversation, is 50 Inventions That Shaped the Modern Economy. Tim, welcome back to Econ Talk. It's great to be back, Russ. I want to start. You did a podcast series on these ideas, correct? Yes, it was simultaneously a book and podcast series for the BBC. And the the name of the series is very slightly different to the book. The book's 50 Inventions That Shaped the Modern Economy and the podcast series was 50 Things That Made the Modern Economy. (laughs) And it ran for a year, one 10-minute episode a week. And they're all still available if Econ Talk listeners um, might enjoy them. They're all free, of course, as many podcasts are. So check them out. Glorious. Uh, only 10 minutes, though, per episode. That's, you know, that's short shrift for some of these ideas, of course. Well, that's true. And that works out as about 1,200 words. So they're, you know, they're they're short chapters. But actually, I found that to be a very good discipline for me because 10 minutes, 1,200 words, it's obviously not enough to say everything. It's not close to being enough to say everything, but it is enough to say something. And the discipline of trying to figure out what it is that you want to say? Do you want to focus on the origin story? Do you want to focus on the unintended consequences? Do you want to, as I often did, do you want to convey uh, an economic lesson and almost a parable about the way the economy works? Um, You just have to make different choices, and that variety was a lot of fun. I think it's what makes the book enjoyable as well as as educational. It's uh, Each chapter is quite short, and you have, as you said, you have to decide what to emphasize, and you know, some things. There are a lot of things I learned a lot from the book uh, that I didn't expect to learn, and some of those things were just facts about the world that were fascinating, and some of them were implications of these ideas that I'd never thought of. So that that was fun. Now we're gonna we can't talk about all fifty, even even if we spent uh, one minute a piece on each one, which wouldn't be enough. I wouldn't want to do that. So, but I we're going to talk about a few of them in specific. But before we do that, I want to ask you how you planned this. How did you, how'd you choose the 50? You explicitly say in the book, they're not the 50 most important inventions. So no. what did you, how'd you decide? No, I mean, there, there are a lot of obvious ones missing. So the, the automobile isn't there, the steam engine isn't there, the computer isn't there, the telephone. I mean, there, there are lots of, of things that would be in anybody's top 20. Um, so I was looking for interesting stories, surprises. Some of them are clearly very important, like the the diesel engine or or the plow. Some of them are obviously not super important. The IKEA Billy bookcase is there. But in each case, the idea was, um, can I teach people a lesson about the way the world economy works through the medium of of one of these inventions? Is there an interesting story to tell? Is there a surprise? So so that, that was the basic mission. Actually, Russ, I know you're very interested in uh, communication of economic ideas. That's what one of your one of the things that fascinates you. It's, um, all, I, it's all I know how to do, Tim. Well, it's, 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 I appreciate the implication that it's more than we, that. But we, it's, we both know that's <laughs> not true, but I, I know it's one of the things you're interested in, and and obviously I'm interested in it as well. And something that I came to discover in working on the book is. It is amazing to be able to focus on a specific thing, a specific time or place or person that obviously that comes from telling these stories. And then starting with something interesting and specific and maybe surprising to then go on and and convey a lesson about, um, you know, winner takes all markets or externalities or or, or something like that. So it was a great lesson for me in economic communication. Um, To come back to the question of how I chose the 50, well, apart from just looking for interesting things, I wanted a a range. I wanted a geographical range. I wanted a historical range. So some of the inventions are many thousands of years old. 
Some of them are pretty new, like seller feedback mechanisms or Google's search algorithm. Um, I wanted a range of industries. So some are transport, some are used in the home, some are consumer-focused, some are very financial. Um, and and that, that was the basic idea. I talked to a lot of friends and to uh, people, historians and technologists that I respect. And then I just started writing. And by the time I'd got through about 35 or 40, you could then go, okay, uh, We've only got a dozen left. <laughs> what's what's missing? And fill in the gaps. Um, at, at the end of the series, the BBC suggested that we crowdsource one more idea. So I, I asked people to send in their suggestions, and there were literally hundreds of suggestions. Many of them were very good. I would say at least 40 or 50 I would be glad to put in a, a second book. Uh, great ideas. So I chose six for a short list and got people to vote on on the final one. So there were, there's really no shortage. It could easily have been 100 things rather than, rather than 50 inventions. Uh, do you, can you tell me what the six were that made the, this, this extra list? I can. Remember? It was it was it was all a big. Oh yeah, it's quite recent. It was all a big secret. But um, <laughs> last week we we published the winner. So the shortlist was. I chose the shortlist um, based on what I thought was interesting in people's suggestions. Um, I what the one thing I didn't put on the shortlist was pornography. Somebody had suggested. Several people suggested pornography was a major driver of the modern economy, uh, of yeah. digital, human digital life, innovation. But, yeah. <laughs> well, but the idea. Well, it uh, uh, people say these things that. Um, it drove um, credit cards on the internet, video on the internet, before that, VHS. I, I, I don't know if it's true, but yeah. I, I thought it was interesting. I yeah. would have loved to have that in the book, but um, I couldn't quite face up to putting it on the short list of six because inevitably it would have won, and then I would have had to go to my colleagues at the BBC <laughs> and say, sorry, we asked the public, and they say the most important thing in the economy is porn. So um, so we didn't do that. The, the, the six that I chose were the credit card, um, the uh, digital spreadsheet, uh, GPS, the global positioning system, uh, glass, um, telescopes, microscopes, spectacles, and glass fiber. Um, the pencil, as a nod to uh, fans of Leonard Reed, is great essay, uh, eye pencil, and irrigation. So those were the six that I suggested. And uh, well, what, what would you have voted for, Russ? Uh, well, they're all fantastic. What were the first two again? The credit card, GPS, glass, the yeah, pencil, I was the spreadsheet, and irrigation. When you said the credit card, I thought, oh, the credit card, of course. And then the others sort of filtered into my brain, and I'm thinking, well, those are important too. Uh, it, it's kind of what you said before. There's so many things you could put on the list. The credit card's an extraordinary, extraordinary thing. Um, and what I like about the book is you don't just extol the virtues of these extraordinary, great innovations – and the people who invented them, you talk about all some of the side effects, which are often not so good for everybody and sometimes not so good at all. Um, so I think I'd go with uh, – on that list, I think I'd go with the credit card. But GPS you know, makes so many things possible. And we're, we're, I'm going to come back. We'll talk about GPS. I want to ask you a broader question. I, sh I should tell you before you ask me the question, I can tell you which one won. And it turns oh, yeah, out I'm that sorry, you yeah. are – you are very much in tune with the BBC audience, Russ, because they, they chose the credit card. Um, and it, and it's, a good, it's a good suggestion because it's, there's a deep point about trust and who is trusted because credit itself yeah. means trust. And this is a technology that broadened out who gets trusted and what they get trusted to do. The technology is also interesting. And just this instantaneous verification of um, you are who you say you are and your, your bank balance is what you say it is. And, and of course, there's some very interesting behavioral economics and psychology of um, this is a very it's powerful free. financial tool. And, <laughs> and yeah, I mean, it does seem that we, you know, we can misuse this tool. Yeah. But one, one little detail I loved is when you survey Americans with credit cards and you ask them, how strongly do you agree with this statement? Um, credit card companies give far too much credit to too many people. 90% um, of them, 95% <laughs> of them agree. Oh yeah, they're far too liberal. But when you ask them, are, are you happy with the way the credit card companies treat you? 80 or 85% of people are very happy. They think they sure. get a great service. They're very satisfied. So we're, we're, we think it's fine for us, but we do worry about what other people might be doing with the technology. Yeah. Uh, the thing I thought that I missed in the book, um, my sort of pet favorite invention that doesn't get enough credit is cardboard uh, in the box. Now, you do have the container, and maybe we'll talk and, about the container, but cardboard is really an extraordinary well. thing. Yeah, we talk about paper. 
Yeah, yeah but, but I, I focus. I don't focus on cardboard. Yeah. I, we're we're in sympathy. I have to say, paper is perhaps my favourite invention in the book in terms of being underrated. And um, there is, I mean, cardboard, corrugated cardboard, very, very important invention. Um, and of course, it's a subset of paper. But also, everybody said, as I was working on the book, oh, you must do the Gutenberg <laughs> Press. So it's revolutionary, gave us the Reformation, gave us textbooks and newspapers and mass literacy and all of the, And of course, all of that is true. But the interesting thing is, if we're focused on the economics, um, it is technologically possible to print using a Gutenberg press, movable type printing press, on animal skin parchment. Um, but it's, it's very expensive. And the in order to justify mass-producing writing, you need a way to mass-produce a writing surface. And that writing surface is paper. So if, we, if this is a, about the economics of printing, uh, you've got to give some respect to paper as well. Well, I was going to say one thing about paper because – you mentioned Leonard Reed's eye pencil, and one of the themes of eye pencil, his essay on the pencils, that no one knows how to make a pencil. That the amount of knowledge embodied in this incredibly simple, seemingly untechnological product actually has quite a bit of technology underlying it, obviously. But it, it's, it requires resources from around the world, technology and knowledge that is not in any one person's head, and it's an example of the cooperation that occurs in a market system. So it's, it's a lovely idea. But if you said to me, you have a year to make a pencil, I couldn't make a very good one, and I'd struggle to make any one at all, but uh, I'd have some vague idea of what, it, what needed to be done. The graphite would be challenging, right? Obviously, graphite's a, a tricky thing that, that I wouldn't know where to get. It's in the ground and has to be uh, refined in certain ways in the process of making the lead for the pencil. But You'd, you'd I, find something that I could leave do something mark, like so. it, exactly. I could probably leave a mark, a piece of charcoal. Paper, you know, I don't have the faintest – if someone <laughs> gave any – take a piece of paper and say, look, here's one. See if you can double the supply. I'll give you, I'll give you 20 years. But the idea that, that you would make that from a tree – I'll give you a clue. It's from a tree. Oh, that's a big help. <laughs> what would I possibly do? How did that, how did that come about? Who had well, the, the idea of – of taking a tree and turning it into this paper thin, if I pardon the expression, uh, writing surface. That's it's absurd. It, it is an amazing invention. Actually, it wasn't it's originally almost as good as bread. I mean, bread's ridiculous too because right, you have this grain, this wheat that is nothing like bread. It's impossible to imagine turning it into bread. But we figured that out over time. But paper, how would you get there? Yeah, no, paper's amazing, and we actually do know who. Who thought of the idea of doing it from trees? It was a um, a French scientist uh, called uh, De Réaumur, if I remember his surname, and he observed wasps, and he thought, "Hang on, wasps are chewing up tree pulp, and they're producing nests which are basically made of paper, so we must be able to do the same thing." But that was only maybe about 300 years ago, or maybe even more recently, he made that observation, and paper is 2,000 years old. Uh, came from China. Um, but they weren't um, initially using wood. They were using cotton rags. Um, but yeah, it's, it's miraculous. You, you basically have to mash up. Uh, if people are listening to this over a meal, I apologize, because you basically need to mash up this stuff in, in urine um, because <laughs> the ammonia breaks down the, um, the, the fibers in the cotton or in the wood. You pulp it away. It was arguably Europe's first industrial process making paper, and the paper mills absolutely stank. The Fabriano in Italy is where it first came to Europe, and you've got these fast-flowing mountain streams driving these uh, drop hammers, which are just macerating these soiled cotton used garments in, in a bath of human urine. And then you spread it all out and, and it dries and, and it forms paper. I'm simpl simplifying a little because I'm an economist, not a paper engineer, but uh, that's where it came from. And yeah, it's, it is a miraculous invention. Um, any I, of these are. And I assume, um, I assume that in modern technology, uh, Ammonia is used in, directly in place of human urine, putting a lot of people out of work, which, yeah, that's the way progress is sometimes. It's, yeah. uh, and there's a lot of recycling creative, as well. Creative and, destruction. And, yeah, I mean, including um, of cardboard boxes. So there's a, there's a great description of this in um, Mark Kalansky's book. He has a whole book on, on paper, and he describes the, the way you can you throw a, 
cardboard box in a recycling bin in Seattle, and it will cross the Pacific Ocean and be uh, pulped and broken down and turned into another cardboard box in China, and then they'll pack some new Chinese product and they'll ship it back across the Pacific. And the cycle, it can't repeat indefinitely because the fiber starts to get brittle, but um, you can do it about six or seven times. Incredible. Um, again, before we get, we've already gotten some products because we just did, but uh, the ones that are in the book, I want to ask you a general question. Uh, well, let me tell you one thing I learned in the book that I don't think you wrote about, uh, which is not about the particular products. It's about the process of invention itself, which is that it's strike, it was striking to me, reading about invention after invention, that we don't commonly know the names of the people who invented these transformative products. And I'll pick one randomly, the barcode. The barcode's an incredible thing. You, write a, you have a chapter on it. It's, it's an amazing way to keep track of inventory, to deal with uh, pricing. At the cash register and then on the shelf, it makes it cheaper to readjust the price. It's an incredible idea. And, and again, it's not something you would just sort of think about, oh, let's have this, these lines. Just, I mean, it's really absurd. I don't know who – I don't remember even having read even having read your book who, who developed that. These people are not our heroes. Uh, maybe they shouldn't be. I don't know. But you know, it's interesting how few after Edison and, say, Steve Jobs in the modern era – it's remarkable how few of the people who transformed our lives are famous. Does, did you think about that? And, and do you think it's a good thing or a bad thing? Do, should we try to honor these people more, more publicly? Well, perhaps we should. I mean, the, I can tell you who did invent the barcode. It was <laughs> a, a, a gentleman called Joseph Woodland, and he uh, had been set the task of trying to improve the efficiency of scanners. This is in the late 1940s, uh, and he went to visit his grandparents who lived by the seaside and he was just he was reflecting on his experience in the boy scouts and morse code and he as he sat idly on the beach he dragged his fingers in a circle and then looked down and he observed the pattern of of grooves that his fingers had had drawn uh, and thought oh, hang on a minute though there's an analogy there with morse code i can use thick and thin lines to, to signify information. So he was the first person to come up with the idea, but, but of course it was developed, it was reinvented several times. It was developed and refined by others. Woodland's original barcode uh, looked like a bullseye and it wasn't particularly practical. You didn't have the computing power. You didn't have the lasers you, you needed. So, so let's forget uh, about him. He doesn't deserve to be. No, I'm kidding. Well, so, but he's, <laughs> Every he's not the only person who, yeah. who does. But actually, the, the interesting thing about the barcode, though, is, um, yes, we should recognize Joseph Woodland. And, and he had an obituary in the New York Times, I seem to remember. So he wasn't celebrated like Steve Jobs, but he was, he was recognized. But you could also, when you're telling that story, focus on the fact that all the committee meetings that were required to get the barcode standard mm -hmm. approved. And it was a bunch, I mean, we all talk about the bureaucracy in the government, but there's a bureaucracy in the private sector as well. And this was the basically the Retailers Association and the uh, Grocery Goods Manufacturers Association arguing over the format of this barcode. Mm. So on the one hand, there are these Joseph Woodland and his successors who created this fantastic invention. Um, but then you've got all these bureaucrats haggling over exactly how it's going to look. And they were right to haggle about how it was going to look because actually dif different codes suited different people. And while it was in everyone's interest to agree on something, they, they, you know, everybody wanted the one that suited exactly their uh, requirements. Is there anything in particular you learned about invention and innovation from the process of thinking about all these, besides the fact that I'm sure it made you a more entertaining dinner party guest, but um, is there anything overarching that, struck you when, when you'd gone through all this, these different tales? Well, a couple of things. So one thing I, I sort of didn't learn, uh, but I thought it was notable that I didn't learn, is I, I didn't learn you know, the one secret to where ideas come from. Uh, what I learned is it's in, incredibly varied. There are 
many inventions that we have no idea who originally came up with them, or they've probably been invented many times in many parts of the world. Um, uh, there are these aha moments of uh, inspiration in the shower, and then there's stuff where you can just track a very, very long process of, of refinement and development and patient engineering. Um, so, I mean, there's there's no obvious pattern to the process of invention. I think that in in itself is is interesting. Yeah. Um, but um, one thing I learned is I, I think that we we do have a tendency to focus on the spectacular. So we want to talk about the Gutenberg press rather than paper. Uh, we want to talk about artificial intelligence, robots, flying cars, uh, rather than the shipping container and the cardboard box and the Billy bookcase. And of course, artificial intelligence is important, and the more sophisticated it becomes, the more important it's going to become. But uh, let's not take our eye off the humble stuff. So right now, for instance, just just the fact that it's so cheap to make sensors and put sensors everywhere, um, we're becoming aware of that as as a as an issue, as an opportunity, potentially as a threat. But it's it's because the sensors become incredibly cheap. You can just put it in absolutely anything, rather than because it's reached some untold heights of sophistication. So that's one thing I learned is is not to undervalue uh, innovations that are important simply because they become very, very cheap and so they become ubiquitous. The other thing I learned was um, not to forget the the way that inventions reshape organizations, reshape the way we live, reshape societies. Often in order to use an invention, take advantage of an invention, you need an awful lot of adjustment. The classic example, which will be well known, I think, to some uh, Econ Talk listeners, is um, Paul David's essay on the dynamo and the computer, reflecting on how long it took electric motors to be adopted in manufacturing in the late 19th, early 20th century, because people had to completely readjust, reconfigure the factories, retrain the workers. Um, I mean, just everything had to change in order to take advantage of this new technology. And initially, when it was used, they tried a direct replacement of the steam engine. We just rip out a big steam engine, replace it with a big electric motor, and that should be fine. And of course, that doesn't realize the gains. So to really take advantage of these technologies, we often have to change and adjust the way we do things, the way we work, the way we live. Otherwise, we don't enjoy the benefits. And sometimes those changes can be, well, they're very hard to predict, but they're also uh, occasionally quite wrenching. Yeah, it's a great example. I, uh, yeah, it's... The part of our adjustment is it's just everywhere, and we don't we don't think about it. It it it, it could determine the size of our kitchen. It could change the kind of clothes we wear. It could change where we live. All those things it, it ripple through our culture and emerge, obviously without any top down direction. Sometimes top down direction, like a standard, might help it. Uh, a decision like that, but so often. Uh, you know, we, we we've talked recently about autonomous vehicles. Yes, and, ben, and Benedict Evans. Correct. It was a fantastic interview. It, very, it very was so interesting. interesting. But one of the things it forces you to start thinking about is if if you can enjoy being in a car as opposed to minimizing the pain of it. Right. You minimize right now. Someone I, I like to think more than one person is listening to this conversation in their car uh, through their smartphone and using the technology of the car. And that has made commuting, I hope, a little more pleasant. And if it's not this podcast, somebody else's. But if you can sit around with your friends and eat and drink and chat and and not work or sleep, it changes so many things that you don't think about other than just, oh, I won't have to be driving. And your first thought is I won't have to be driving. Those second, third, fourth, and fifth thoughts are what uh, emerge from the technology that you haven't originally thought about. Um, so let's move to some of the examples that you give. Uh, one of the ones that fascinated me was uh, TV dinner. I'm old enough to remember what a TV dinner actually looked like. It, it really, for those of you who are not old enough, or for the original ones, they look a lot like airplane, really bad airplane food. It's a it's a tray that had this pre-cooked food. You just have to, had to heat it up. It, it, it's a hard case to make that that's an important invention. But well, what I found fascinating about the chapter is that you at one point listed all the things that are like a TV dinner that are pre-prepared so that I don't have to do the all the work of cooking, which is 
know, we've had Rachel Lawton on the program talking about uh, the challenge of converting uh, f- uh, food into – I forget how the phrase she uses, but, but stuff into something you can actually eat. A lot of things are edible, but to put them into a form that you can eat them, you often have to cook them. You have to you have to chop them. You have to you have to turn them into flour, into dough, into bread. And uh, I hadn't thought fully until I saw your chapter on this of how many things uh, that we have in the store that in our tech modern world that that make eating easier. Yeah, and uh, the huge time savings, and of course, uh, given the history of you know, the way society has worked for, well, for a long time, uh, the, the people whose time was most saved tended to be women, um, housewives who were expected to, to go through all this preparation to literally put food on the table for their families. And that, that would involve plucking uh, chickens and uh, you know, uh, planting vegetables and, and plucking them from the, from the back garden, cleaning all the earth off and, and all of these countless uh, pieces of preparation that needed to be done. Um, what was interesting about the TV dinner was it was originally not going to be about the TV dinner at all. It was going to be about the washing machine. Because again, uh, everybody said, when I told them I was going to do this project, and write this book about these 50 inventions, people said, oh, you must do the washing machine. Because the washing machine was such an amazing force for liberating uh, liberating women from the home. They could get out and they could, instead of being working unpaid in a household, they would work uh, for money uh, in the market, and that was liberating and empowering in all kinds of ways. And then when I looked into it, I, I really wanted to write this story. I thought, great story. Um, it, it turns out it's not true. Mm-hmm. So my, my, my source was um, Alison Wolfe's book, The Double X Factor, although there are, there are other scholars who've, who've done the same sort of work. And uh, Alison Wolfe looked at the time use diaries, and she said, um, yeah, actually, uh, we know how much time women spent doing laundry in 1930s and in the 1960s and today, and it hasn't changed. What's changed is uh, we do a lot more laundry, and it's still <laughs> mostly women, um, although I have to say I do the laundry in, in our home, but um, we, you know, we just wash our clothes every day, rather than um, my, uh, my mother-in-law told me that when she was a uh, schoolgirl in the 1930s, they would change their uniforms uh, once per term, and they'd have... <laughs> changeable collars and uh, I mean these are primary school kids so hopefully not quite as smelly as as adults but you know they changed the collars they changed the the cuffs and they had pads that they wore uh, in their armpits and they they could wash the pads but the actual clothes would be laundered roughly once every two or three months uh, and which which makes you think and now of course you just wash them every day and you don't think about it um, but it means the washing machine didn't actually save time it just increased the amount of washing and we all smelt better. TV dinners, though, and not just TV dinners, but the freezer, the fridge, pre-chopped salad, pre-plucked chicken, takeaway pizza, uh, sandwiches, burritos, the whole thing, the whole kind of industrialization and, and pasta, uh, convenience food. Pasta all, sauce, all, spaghetti yeah, sauce. All of these things. So many, so many, so many. Um, that really did save time because you had to eat two or three meals a day. You just had to eat. And in the time when all of this stuff had to be prepared. That task fell on women. Uh, and ev- even fairly recently, so in the 1960s, and even quite educated women in prosperous families, who we, we would perhaps naively think of as, oh yeah, they would have had a lot of choices, they would have had a lot of freedom. They're spending hours just preparing food. And the industrialization of food, the outsourcing of, of food preparation, either to factories or to restaurants, saved a tremendous amount of time. But it's a lot less... The thing about the washing machine is this beautiful, sleek, cubic robot that sits in your kitchen or in your in your bathroom and does all this work and it's super clean. Whereas when we think about the industrialization, industrialization of food, we think about, oh, there's too much salt, there's too much sugar, there are additives, snack food makes us fat. And so we have much more complicated feelings about it. And we don't want to acknowledge that it was this transformative innovation. Yeah, I was going to make the observation that processed food has such a bad name. Uh, but if making everything from scratch, and my son makes his own mayonnaise, God bless him. And and homemade mayonnaise, I want to recommend. Uh, it's not easy to do, but they're easier than hard ways to do it. And 
when you've had real mayonnaise, it's shocking experience. Uh, it, it tastes nothing like what is in that jar. Uh, so some of these things, you know, as you say, there's some of them are not so healthy or the quality is not so good. But there's so many things we enjoy, uh, like clean vegetables. Just an interesting example that we don't typically have to watch our vegetable wash our vegetables very much. Uh, is is really quite extraordinary. And, and yeah, bagged salads. I, I remember when bagged salads were invented. Yeah, it wasn't, that, that's, who it wasn't would buy that, that long ago, and it who just would, seemed crazy. Like, right, why would, would you save, buy? Yeah. Yeah, and now, of course, that's yeah, that's all I buy. Yeah, me too. Uh, I was ashamed to say or not. Um, let's talk about the shipping container because it's another example for me. When I read the book, I thought I had a pretty good understanding of what was good about the shipping container. It's we've talked a little bit about this before on the program that it's very hard to appreciate uh, what round square does rather than uh, oddly shaped. And what the sh- one of the things that the shipping container does is it. It makes it easier to pack the ship uh, that's coming across the Pacific or the rail car or whatever it is more effectively. But it's not the only thing. So talk about some of the benefits of the shipping container. It's really quite unbelievable. Yeah. And I should say, by the way, people who are really interested in this topic, Mark Levinson wrote a wonderful, yeah. an entire book on the shipping container called The Box, which, yep. is, which is a great uh, a great source. But um, yeah, so one of the things that it did was to save time. Because this huge amount of effort was spent every every time there was a transition between a mode of transport uh, on the docks at the at the uh, freight depot loading onto trucks loading onto trains every time there was a change in mode of transport everything needed to be unpacked and then repacked um, you needed to keep track of where everything was hugely complex um, and just a vast amount of labour um, quite dangerous labour. I mean, this is a really, it was much more dangerous job than construction, for example. Um, so, um, so you save time, um, you save lives and injuries, because uh, it was much safer. You also had a much more reliable experience. So you really understood how long something was going to take to get from one part of the world to another part of the world. So, I mean, that, those are these three major benefits, the, the, um, the time saving, the predictability uh, and and the the safety, the implication of all this, of course, is that the costs went way way down. So um, f- for the price of um, you know shipping a ton of goods in say the 1950s, just before the shipping containers came in, you could now uh, inflation adjusted for the same price you could you could ship an entire container, and a container might be 40 tons rather than one ton. So you've got a, a 40 fold fall in the price, um, a, an increase in the speed from you know, something that might take sort of two or three months, all told, to two or three weeks. Uh, you've saved a lot of jobs, you've saved a lot of lives, uh, and the whole thing's much more predictable, which makes just-in-time supply chains possible. So did I miss anything? There's a lot no, going th- on there. No, I think that's, those are the high points. I would, to me, what's so striking that I hadn't thought about was the speed I always think about it, it saves space. It makes space more used more effectively. And the example I like, it's, it's not quite the same example, but it's, it's such an interesting application of a similar principle is that it can be environmentally better to ship juice boxes rather than oranges. So the oranges, you do put them in a box, uh, which helps. But one way to think about this is at one extreme, you'd fill up the truck with oranges <laughs> and then unpacking them you know, is, is tricky. You've got to, how do you, how do you grab the oranges? How do you move them into a new container, as you point out, new mode of transport? So putting them in a box is a huge improvement. But even in a box, an orange uh, has lots of spaces between them. Whereas in the juice box, if you pulp the, and juice the oranges at the orchard or near the orchard, uh, you can get, a, a, you can carry a lot more oranges effectively in a, in the form of, of, of juice boxes even though there's, quote, waste involved. It's always waste. It's always got to be waste. So in one case, the waste is this space on the truck. You got to use more trucks. That's not good for the environment either. So I, I've always loved the fact that the geometry of round and square make a difference, but I didn't think about the unpacking. And I, and I sort of think about, you know, when you pack your suitcase, if you think about packing a, a, a backpack and you start throwing things down into the bottom and you start piling things on top and then getting them out, that way versus, say, packing cubes, which is another innovation. We, you could have written uh, probably more than one chapter on there. So marvelous. Um, but There's it, another really interesting <laughs> lesson in the shipping container, which, yeah, um, which is, I think would appeal to your, um, 
uh, the, the way you tend to look at the world is, is that um, government was a big problem and needed to be uh, circumvented in order to introduce this system. So the thing about the shipping container, it's not like it's an amazing invention. It's 1850s technology, wasn't introduced to the 1950s. It, lots of people had thought maybe we should stick the stuff in a box. Maybe that would help if we would just move the box. Um, but it was just trying to get the whole thing coordinated. It needed to be adopted by the shipping companies and the trucking companies and uh, the railroads and internationally. And you need to overcome uh, some uh, objections from the unions because they rightly feared that a lot of jobs would be lost. But one of the problems was that um, transport in the US at the time, the 1950s, was so heavily regulated in principle to avoid... Um, violations of antitrust and we don't we don't want consumers to be exploited but in practice what was happening was the regulators seemed to have been completely captured by the industry and so they were specifying um, oh you're not allowed to open up um, a new route unless you can prove that there's a need this ties into you had a recent interview with with um, Mike Munger on permissionless innovation nothing could be done and nothing could change in the shipping industry the trucking industry and the railroad industry without regulatory permission and Malcolm McLean who is the entrepreneur who came up with the shipping container system was a master at getting around these regulations so one rule was well you can't own a trucking company and a shipping company because that might be anti-competitive. I mean, like, well, yeah, it might be. On the other hand, if you're trying to introduce an integrated system, it might be kind of handy to, yeah. to own both. And he just pulled off this audacious um, piece of legal and financial engineering where he basically ended up controlling both at the same time, um, despite the fact that it was against the law. And he somehow managed to not violate any rules in doing that so and he he was a very savvy operator he got he got the regulators on his side and um, at one point he was supplying uh, logistical services to the uh, u.s department of defense which is obviously a very useful customer to have um, so he was he was good at playing that game and that's that's why we have shipping containers now it wasn't just oh someone came up with a good idea it's someone managed to navigate the political and regulatory thicket and take some you know big, bold business risks too, and make it all work. So let's play uh, against my uh, worldview, and let's talk about the iPhone, which you have a very uh, interesting chapter where you point out, I think based on uh, Mariana Matsukata's work, that a huge portion of the key technology inside a smartphone today was started by the government. Yeah. Explain. It's a, it's a- it's a really interesting example. Uh, so there are lots of stories in the book about private sector entrepreneurs doing cool things. And I wanted to make the point that it's not always like that. Well, that's certainly not always the whole story. And in the case of the iPhone, uh, when Mariana Matsukatu um, just looked at the key technologies in that phone. So what is it that makes it an iPhone? Okay, the touchscreen. Well, uh, touchscreen has been refined by the private sector, but was originally developed by the Royal Radar Institute in uh, the UK. Um, GPS. GPS is a US Department of Defense uh, development. It's a military technology. The fast Fourier transform algorithms that basically take uh, sound waves, which are analog, and convert them into digital signals, or any analog signal to digital and back, that mathematical algorithm was developed by mathematicians working for the U.S. Department of Defense. Um, the, uh, the hard drive technology, again, uh, subsidized by the U.S. military. Computers themselves originally developed as a code-breaking technology. The Internet, uh, funded famously funded by ARPA, uh, again, defense. So uh, invention after invention that is making this iPhone an iPhone rather than a toy um, – they, they come from government. The fundamental inventions were funded, subsidized uh, by governments, often by the U.S. government and often by the U.S. military. Now, of course, at the end of the process, along comes Steve Jobs. and say, I mean, Even Siri, by the way, was originally designed for fighter pilots. Um, so along, at the end of the process, along comes Steve Jobs and says, we have these amazing technologies. I'm going to put them all together in a brilliantly designed package. Uh, now, no government took that step, and I think there's a fair case to be made that no government is ever likely to take that step. Steve Jobs took that step, and he deserves the plaudits. Um, but he wouldn't have had any raw materials 
to work with without government-backed innovation. So what do you think I'd say to that? How do you think – what do you think my response – I'm going to put you on the spot here. Uh, how do you think someone with my worldview, which I think you understand pretty well actually, what do you think I'll – what's my response to that? Well, I was wondering. I, I thought we'd end up discussing this, um, so I was I was looking forward to your your take on it. So, I mean, there are a couple. You of can duck the take. question if you want. Well, no, no, no. So there are a couple of possible responses. I'm not sure what you'd say, and, I, and I'm, I look forward to hearing your response. A couple of possible responses. So some people have complained about this chapter and said, "Oh, you're diminishing private sector innovation." And to them, I generally say, "Well." If you read the rest of the book, there are lots of examples of private sector <laughs> yeah, innovation. It's, it's I'm a trying silly, to. It's a cheap shot. Yeah. But, um, but so one, one um, response is um, actually Steve Jobs took the critical step, and, and all of these basic innovations were not that significant. I think that's hard to defend. But another, another response would be um, well, um, this, these inventions, the um, GPS, the fast Fourier transform, the hard drive, uh, they could have been developed by the private sector, um, e- even without government subsidy. And maybe it would have happened uh, just as quickly, or there would have been a better way to do it. Um, or you could say that the government role in developing something like the hard drive is exaggerated. Yeah, they they gave it a push at the start, but it would it would have happened anyway. Um, so, or you might say, well, that's just the way the world works. Things are complicated. Governments do do some good things. And, um, and in this particular case, they, they did some important stuff and we have the iPhone and, and what's the problem? So there are various responses, but I'm intrigued as to what your thoughts are. So my first response, those are very good, by the way. And I think you passed the uh, ideological touring test as a result, because I know you're not as, for, I suspect, I'm pretty sure you're not as free market as I am uh, and as interventionist, non-interventionist as I am. But my first response was, I didn't know that. So that's interesting, right? I learned something. Uh, I'm assuming it's true. Uh, obviously, there are ways to describe things that over-exaggerate or understate, which came from the private, which came from the public. But, but I think it's, I think it's, what I think is true is that a number of really, really important technologies came from the military's um, research efforts to stay ahead of, of people seen as enemies, yeah. And to do things better. And that's what fascinates me. I don't think – the reason I the reason I didn't have any any uh, visceral negative reaction to the chapter is that, as you say, first of all, there's lots of – the book extols human creativity, which is what I really care about. Um, but I think the, the harder challenge is it's a little bit alarming almost, the, the finding, because it's not – and this is – this is what I meant to say a second ago. I lost my train of thought. You're not claiming, oh, there and therefore, the government should be. We should spend. We should quadruple or tenfold increase the government research budget so that we can get the next generation of human communication technology beyond the iPhone. Because that's not the implication, uh, I don't think. And you certainly don't make that claim. What's alarming about it is the implication that that defense spending has these wonderful positive externalities. Um, and I don't, you know, people have made the same claims about the space program. We used to talk about this on the program in the past. I don't remember what we talked about exactly, but a long time ago. And, and so the question is, the way I took that chapter is saying, you know, it's shocking how many silver linings there are for the, the billions of dollars we spent on defense that either protected us, which is better, which is good, or did nothing, was money that was just it looked it could have been wasted, but it turned out to have this beneficial side effect of private improvement. And I, I I'm not sure what the implications of it are uh, for public policy, but it, it but it made me think a lot because I, I've heard these claims about defense spending, and is it just maybe a silver lining? Is it? I, I don't think people would argue. Oh, therefore we should spend more on defense. Uh, so anyway, I just I, it made me think a lot. Yeah. Or you, you could claim that it's it's a fluke. It's a one-off. These are all yeah. kind of – I know there are lots of different exa- uh, cases, but they're all basically tangled up with um, information technology. And maybe it's just um, the the early computers happened to come along in the 1940s. And uh, yeah, maybe, so maybe it's just coincidence. I think it is worth thinking um, about the policy implications. I'm not sure what they are. Um, the one thing that I have seen uh, – argued and i t- 
tend to sympathize with is the idea that we don't seem to do as much fundamental research as we used to. Uh, and in particular, the private sector doesn't seem to do as much fundamental research uh, as it used to. So if you look at um, what seem to be the glory days of fundamental research in the private sector, so say from the um, 1920s to the 1970s, a lot of Nobel Prizes given to people working in corporate labs. Bell is the most famous yeah. case, but uh, and Claude Shannon worked there and he didn't he didn't even get a Nobel Prize, but he was perhaps the most brilliant of the lot. Um, but uh, Shockley, Brattain, and Bardeen for uh, semiconductors. Um, uh, there's a gentleman whose name I forget um, who uh, developed fiber optics. He was in the private sector. There's um, uh, ESO, I think his name was, who was working at Sony and then IBM, uh, who did, I think, superconductors. Oh, no, no, he did um, uh, the tunneling uh, electron microscope. And, and the, the guy at Texas Instruments, a lot of Nobel Prizes going for what are, were basically corporate inventions. Um, there, there's some evidence that I find, uh, well, I, you know, maybe it's not that convincing. I, I, I'm convinced by it, but maybe that says more about me. Some evidence that corporations don't do as much of that anymore. There's some fundamental research. Google's AlphaGo yeah. maybe is an example, but not much. Um, I mean, you look at Apple, which is the, the most profitable company in the world. Um, it's hard to say, hard to justify the claim that they're doing anything really fundamental. I mean, they're a great company, and they're you know producing great products. Um, but is anyone at Apple going to win a Nobel Prize? It yeah, seems unlikely. Not, yeah, they're not so transformative. I think the Bell example is a great example. Bell Labs, because Bell Labs was a it's a private company, but it's kind of a private company created by a government. Uh, monopoly that allowed them to be a lot more profitable than they should have been, allowed them to indulge that exist. The, the very existence of Bell Labs is, is a crazy thing. And I do think in today's world, the only equivalent would probably be what's going on at Google right now and a few other places. Highly profitable, uh, enormous uh, margins, at least in the short run. We don't know if they're going to persist, and we're going to be talking about that soon with, with guests down the road. But you know, they can indulge in a section of their of their corporation that ha, that has you know what we would call pie in the sky, crazy ideas, many of which will not work, not come to fruition, and hire really creative, really smart people. And I think Google does that. I've, I, some of them are my friends, um, and it's wonderful what that that's opportunities there. They're doing what I would call academic research, but with the idea of doing something practical in some dimension, funded in a way that's unimaginable at the academic level. Yeah, I mean, and Claude Shannon at Bell Labs. I mean, he he produced two of the greatest uh, research papers of the 20th century in, in information theory. One that basically said, you know, um, basically everything can be zeros and ones. That, that's that first amazing breakthrough. You, the, the idea that you can create thinking machines with zeros and ones. Uh, Crazy and, idea. Uh, yeah, amazing. And then the, and then the second breakthrough that basically connected information theory to the physics of entropy. Um, I mean, these were huge. And then for the rest of his life, I think that was all done by the time he was about 30. The rest of his life, he mostly seemed to spend unicycling uh, while juggling around Bell Labs. I mean, he was just, they just had him on the payroll because he's Claude Shannon and who wouldn't want Claude Shannon on the payroll? But he didn't do that much afterwards. Um, and maybe with that in mind, it's not surprising that Companies these days say, "Well, no, we we actually want more practical stuff. We we want inventions that are going to uh, improve the consumer products we sell next year or the year after, not stuff that might come to fruition in well, in the case of prime number research, that came to fruition about two hundred years after the original <laughs> breakthrough, and you, you can see why a company wouldn't want to fund that kind of thing. Yes. So it's it's tricky. There are possible policy solutions. I discussed some of them actually way back in Adapt, which is a book we discussed." Six years ago, as you mentioned, but I don't think it's—I don't think it's obvious what conclusion one draws from this. It's, it's, but it's something to pay attention to. I'm going to—I'm going to make a plug here for the Billy Bookcase chapter. Uh, I, I don't—I have shopped at IKEA, but I haven't in a while, and I did not know about the Billy Bookcase. For those of you who have them, uh, I want to put a plug in for the book that that chapter is is very very interesting, which I. 
which way exceeded my expectations, Tim. I had, I had low expectations <laughs> that the Billy Bookcase chapter was going to be a good one, but it, but it is. But Thank I'm just, you. The point, uh, just very briefly, the point yeah. I wanted to make there is a lot of innovation in the modern world is not iPhones and uh, yeah. AlphaGo. It's um, just making stuff a little bit cheaper, improving the logistics, cutting down on materials so you can have uh, nice, well-designed stuff in your home for less money. And let's not overlook that. It, that that's not bravo. nothing. Yeah, bravo. But I want to talk about a, one, of my, um, one of my favorite topics, and it was discussed at uh, at, at length in my uh, EconTalk interview with, with Jason Barr, we're talking about skyscrapers, and and that's the the elevator, which you point out is a form of mass transportation. And once we had the technology of the elevator buttons rather than the elevator operator, I never realized. And I'm not sure you mentioned this. It's autonomous. It, it's it's really a driverless car. Now it's it's got a narrow track, but it's uh, it's grossly underappreciated. Yeah, I think James Besson, who who is an interesting thinker on technology, thinks that the elevator operator is the only the only job category ever to have been eliminated by technological progress. Um, so, so yeah, elevators are, uh, are fascinating. Um, they one thing I, I don't think I got to mention in the book is that they now have elevators that you have two elevators running separately in the same elevator shaft. Yeah, you, just talk, kind of, you did talk about that. Do, do I mention yeah, that? in the book? You did. Just mind-blowing. So, so the idea, do you imagine a double-decker elevator? So this is quite standard in, in some big buildings now. So you, if you're going to an odd-numbered floor, you, um, you, you get in on floor one. And if you're going to an even-numbered floor, you take an escalator up to the mezzanine and you get in on floor two. Hmm. And then the, the double-decker elevator then drops people off at the odd-numbered and even-numbered floor oh, simultaneously. So <laughs> it is clever. Uh, and they even have triple-decker elevators in some places. But the... Um, the next step is just to say, well, hang on, you just have two separate elevators. The first one, they're both stored in the basement. One of them comes up, grabs a whole load of people in the morning, and off it goes, stopping at various floors as it goes up the building. While that's going up, the second one comes up to the ground floor, people get on, and it follows up the first elevator, and the computer just makes sure they don't hit each other. And then when it reaches the top of the building, the top elevator just disappears into the roof and waits. The elevator beneath it gets to the top of the building, picks some people up, and then starts on the way back down. And then it's followed by the second elevator. You think about that, you go, "Wow, people are clever." Um, and you would just—you would never even know that, but the importance of that. that this which, system existed. The importance of that, what came out in the bar episode, is that as buildings get taller, you have to devote more and more space to elevator shafts. And yeah, I assume so we need we this, need to get better at this. Yeah, this is really a hugely important innovation. This idea of double decking or of of uh, multi multi car tracking. It's just a, a fantastic, fantastically important. And again, as an example, something you don't even notice that saves going to save uh, save money. Um, it's yeah, a wonderful. And you thing. think about you think about the environmental impact of um, of the whole complex of public transport. Um, or mass transit, the elevator, and the con- the technologies that go into the skyscraper, like concrete, um, steel, and uh, air conditioning. All, you can't really have skyscrapers without without those. Um, there, there's a point that um, David Owen makes in a wonderful essay in the New Yorker called Green Manhattan, where he points out Manhattan has lower energy consumption, and all it's 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 an incredibly green place by the standards of most of America. Um, and that's partly because of the density. That density is made possible by the elevator. And if you imagine taking a big building like the, um, the Sears Tower in Chicago, now, now called the Willis Tower, um, take a building like that, which is enormous, um, and just slice it into one or two-story chunks. And imagine just placing them in an, in an office park or an industrial park um, out in sort of um, Virginia and the outskirts of, of Washington, D.C. And, uh, and the amount of car parking space that would be needed um, to accommodate all of that. And it's just a huge, huge area. And you, you, may, you actually get a better, higher rent uh, building that is more usable, that more people want to actually live in or work in with massively less environmental impact by using the elevator as a mass transit system. But nobody thinks of the elevator as a mass transit system. We just take it, we, we take it for granted. So, um, yeah, really I'm, I'm, always, I'm always trying to champion the, the inventions that, you know, that don't get enough love, and the elevator is definitely one of them. Yeah, I think, 
I interviewed David Owen, I think on that topic, the green nature of cities and how we don't appreciate urban density. It, 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 I'm pretty sure that was the, the focus of that. The thing I didn't think about enough until I read your chapter on this is the Otis invention of the, the safety brake, which made elevators uh, safer. It didn't – correct me if I'm wrong. It didn't just make them safer. It made them safe. So it didn't just reduce the probability. Or am I wrong? Is it – was it close to foolproof, foolproof? Oh, it's, it's close to foolproof. So I don't think we have uh, good, really good statistics on uh, the number of elevator accidents, but they are uh, a pro- they're close to zero except for the people who work on elevator repair. So a f- small number of people are killed uh, fixing elevators. Um, it's, you, you inc- think- it's incredibly rare. I mean, it does happen, but it's incredibly rare. But we think about the driver killed by an elevator. The, the autonomous car makes people nervous, right? Because no one's in charge of it, which I understand that uneasiness, and and um, that's totally human. And over time, if it does prove to be as safe as people hope or expect it will be, then people won't be afraid of them anymore. They'll just think of it as totally normal. But we think about the elevators that where cables snapped and and people died in the early days, or you just even propose the idea of riding up and down a 20 or 40 story building in a box people wouldn't want to get in them it, the evolution to thinking oh, what's i mean no one gets on an elevator these days with unease and yeah, well, that, I that's mean, an incredible I think a thing few, a few people are claustrophobic but yeah. yeah i think even even they would acknowledge that it's it's not a rational fear. Yeah, and, but Otis understood this. So um, we've had elevators for centuries, um, industrial ele- elevators in, in uh, mines, um, but also occasionally uh, residential elevators. So one of, the, one of the French kings, one of the King Louis of France had an elevator uh, for his mistress. It was all concealed in, behind a chimney breast. Um, so he had this, you know, the secret love lift. But, um, but nobody in their right mind is going to get in an elevator that goes to five stories unless – there's some proof against the rope snapping. Um, and if, if you, you're only going to get into an elevator that will go to a height of six feet or eight feet, there's, it's, there's a limited use for the technology. So Otis realized you need some kind of break. You need some kind of safety mechanism. And he, he realized that you needed to demonstrate this very publicly. So he had this demonstration at the World's Fair. I think it was in Chicago um, around about 1850. I forget the exact details. Um, but it was it was it wasn't one of these big kind of ex, uh, exhibitions of great exhibitions of the 19th century, and he had a an executioner with an axe standing behind him. So the the, the I mean there was, must have been this whole it must have been reminiscent of a of a gallows or a guillotine. Yeah. So he's on this platform and it's raised up above the the crowd, and behind him the executioner swings the axe and cuts the rope, and there's this gasp from the crowd, and the elevator just shudders and drops half an inch. And then he yells out, all safe, gentlemen, all safe. And that's his demonstration. He's, he's cracked the problem. And it's that that's required for the elevator to take off. And it does. Can you imagine how many YouTube views that would have, that would have had if we'd had YouTube back then? I mean, that, that thing would have gone viral for sure. Yeah. He was a showman. He <laughs> was, was a yeah. showman. I and mean, he would have dressed up that executioner really well. I'm sure he already he did. He probably did it just for the crowd. Um, you know, your last number 50 is an epilogue. Uh, and it's um, it's a beautiful chapter for lots of reasons. It's on light. So talk about light. Yeah. So I start with an experiment that the great economist Bill Nordhaus did. Um, he, he went into the back garden. He chopped wood. Uh, he assembled the wood in the fireplace and set fire to the wood and then sat there with a Minolta light meter measuring the light being given off by the, the flicker of the firewood and how much light there was, how strong it was, and how long it lasted. And then another day he did something similar, only he had an antique oil lamp, allegedly from Rome itself. I'm not sure that it really was. But he had this antique oil lamp. He filled it with olive oil. He lit the lamp and, again, watched it burn, measured how long it burned for, and the power of the flame. It was a much cleaner, stronger, brighter flame for much longer, just for um, you know, an egg cup full of oil. And he went through all of these experiments because he was trying to understand how much labor was required to produce a given output of light. 
his interest was in inflation measures. You know, we try and measure how the price of things changes through time, but it's always difficult to adjust for quality. But in the case of light, he said, well, you know, there is a measure of light, the amount of light being produced. I can measure how much effort it takes to produce enough firelight to read a book by, or to produce enough candlelight to read a book by, or to produce enough uh, uh, light from an oil lamp to read a book by. And so he went to this, this exhaustive process, and it produced a wonderful uh, paper tracking the price of light in um, hours of work required from prehistoric times to, uh, I think it went through to about 1990. Um, and there's, the conclusion he reached was that there's no inflation measure that does any justice to how rapidly the price of light has fallen. It's just many, many, many orders of magnitude from light being such an expensive luxury that when the sun went down, that was it. Forget it. There's nothing, there was nothing you could do to create light, so nothing practical you could do to create light. Through to the situation we have today, where we, we think nothing of it. We flick on a light switch, we can have all the light we want, and it's, it's so cheap that for most households, they can think of it as being free. So I wanted to, to write about Nordhaus's work, but also to ask us to reflect on the the privilege it is to be alive today. Many problems in the world, but we, but many good things as well. And we are living off the inventiveness of all of our forebears who produced all of these technological improvements that we get to enjoy, and of course, so quickly we take for granted. You say beautifully in the, that chapter, you say man-made light was once a thing that was too precious to use. And you have some great information about candles, which is really, I didn't know anything about, really interesting. And, and of course, once light could be shared in dramatic and effective ways, it made possible public entertainment, mass entertainment, mass audiences for concerts, sports, etc. It just changed the world in so many and let you read at night without hurting your eyes, which is glorious. But you say man-made light was once a thing that was too precious to use. Now it is too cheap to notice. And you use it to talk about an example from Tim Taylor, former Econ Talk guest. Uh, it's a variation of an exercise that I think about and, and talk about, which is you have $70,000 today, or would you rather have $70,000 in 1900? Because you'd think, well, 1900 – Things were so cheap that inflation's been so large over the last century, $70,000 would go a lot farther. Think how much farther it would go in 1900, but of course, it's not the case. Yeah, I, mean, I, I love the, the Tim Taylor thought experiment. And yes, the, the more you think about it, the more you think, yeah, I would, I would rather be um, middle income in 2017 than fabulously rich in 1917 or 1900. Um, because d despite all the status, I would have servants, I would have people fawning over me, people taking me very seriously. In terms of actual physical goods that I could buy, um, you know, I couldn't have a good car, forget uh, cell phones, computers, obviously none of that, but no antibiotics, very um, uh, you know, limited air conditioning, hot showers, so much of what we take for granted today, even on a quite modest income would have been unavailable. And I think it is worth reflecting on that. I mean, I don't, I don't want to suggest, oh, just everything's great, right, we have no problems. But um, and there are several chapters in the book where I discuss um, you know, errors and abuses and, and uh, technologies that have had serious uh, negative consequences and, and side effects. There's a lot of that. But ultimately, um, you know, we, we are very lucky to be living in 2017 rather than in 1817 or, or for that matter, in AD 17. For the overwhelming majority of people, the opportunities and the comforts that are afforded to us, in large part by these technological inventions, they're great. And it's human nature to forget them, and we shouldn't. Final question. Uh, it just came to me as I was, we've been talking. I, I, it crossed my mind. Is there any economic idea, meaning an idea from the field of economics, that would rate as important for, for daily life? So, you know, there's a famous example. Um, I think it's Paul Samuelson who said it that uh, – I hope I got that right – that the idea of comparative advantage from David Ricardo in 1817, 
we're on the 200th anniversary of it, which is nice to think about. The idea of comparative advantage is, is he claimed, uh, and I'm also wondering if it's Paul Krugman, but I'll get it. We'll we'll get it straight. I'll put I think bra- it's Samuelson. Yeah, I think it's good, Samuelson. Good. It's terrible to confuse the two. Um, said it's the he only- may be one of these people like Keynes who just gets <laughs> lots of things get attributed to Mark Twain or right. you know, yeah, yeah. Some people get credit for things they didn't say, but I'm I'm pretty sure it was Samuelson. And most people get credit for inventions they didn't actually invent, as you point out many many times in the book, or that were prevented at the same time by others. But um, he said comparative advantage is the one idea in economics that's both unobvious and true. Uh, there are ideas in economics that are um, obvious, which, and there are ones that are not obvious, but many of them are false. Uh, but but that's one that it's it's really not obvious. It's very contrary. The problem with it is is that it wasn't like once Ricardo came up with it, people said, "Oh, we sh- we can trade now. I don't have to be good at something. I can trade because I have a comparative advantage, not an absolute advantage. It's just a description." Now, understanding it could help. It could help make the case. For free trade, though Adam Smith made a very powerful case for free trade in 1776 without it. Um, if you had to list one economic idea that has been important in human affairs, what would you pick? I'm not sure. Well, I, I have my own favor, but it's, I'm not sure it's a good answer. There, there, there are there are a lot you could pick, and there's a difference between the one that's the most important economic idea for understanding economics and the most right. important uh, <laughs> idea for practicality. Yeah. But there is what there is one in the book, so I'm going to pick the one in the book, uh, and that is the idea of the efficient markets hypothesis, mm. um, which led to the development of the index fund, mm. and and it was Paul Samuelson. So it links in with with uh, oh, what perfect. you said uh, a moment ago. So um, Paul Samuelson pointed out he he was one of several people developing this idea of efficient markets and that idea has various forms but basically you know why would you expect there to be obvious bargains uh, shouldn't the price of assets already basically reflect what everybody knows if if there's some something that's obviously cheap surely the price should rise and it won't be obviously cheap anymore the implication of that idea is that if you just produced a financial asset that tracked the prices of everything else, track to say all the all the shares on the stock market, uh, and you could do that cheaply. Then that financial asset would be a very straightforward and accessible way to invest. Uh, you don't need to pay lots of money to stock pickers who can't really pick stocks. So Samuelson published this idea in the mid 1970s under the title "A Challenge to Judgment." Um, Jack Bogle, who'd been thinking along the same lines for some time, read Samuelson's "Challenge to Judgment." He had just decided to set up a low-cost investment fund, uh, which is now called Vanguard. Uh, and he said, oh, I'm just going to do that. I will take up Samuelson's challenge. So this is perhaps one of the only examples in the history of economic thought where an academic economist said something and almost immediately someone said, yeah, we'll do just that. And of course, now Van- Vanguard index funds are, are huge, just um, trillions of dollars. And they've saved an enormous amount of money for investors, and uh, they're one of the most successful companies around. And, and it came from Jack Bogle's initiative and Paul Samuelson's challenge. I'm impressed you call him Jack. His given name is John, for the, just to make sure people don't Google it incorrectly. And, and I, we do have an econ talk episode with him, but you're not a personal – do you have a, a personal relationship with him? I, I do not have a personal relationship with him. I'm a big admirer of him, but I do. I think that he is often referred to as Jack. Okay. And if he is, if he is not, then I no, apologize to him for being over familiar. <laughs> My guest today has been Tim Harford. Tim, uh, his book is called Fifty Inventions That Shaped the Modern Economy." Tim, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you, Russ. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday. <laughs>